I wasn't planning to cry today, but I think the Holy Spirit has other plans. So I brought the Kleenex just in case. (laughs) Good morning. Okay, so I need I need you to raise your hands if you are no 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 if 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 there's qualification here if you are in school or going to be in school in a few days college homeschool wow that's a majority okay I'm sorry the school of hard knocks eh um okay so in school you have quizzes and tests right. It's your favorite part? No. Okay, so, so if somebody knew there was going to be a trick question on your next test, would you like to know? If there was one thing you could learn that could help you in all your subjects for all those trick questions, would you like to know? Would it be worth going through a little trouble, like a few minutes of trouble? Good, because you're working today. Um. Life is full of quizzes and tests, and there's some trick questions. But if you participate in what we're doing today, um, I think that'll help you. I know that'll help you in every test that you face in life. This is not going to be a lecture. This is going to be something that you participate in. See, the tricky part of Christianity is that while Jesus lived during the Roman Empire, What he taught is kind of hard to understand from a Western mindset, some of the things. Like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. What do you do with that? Or, if you abide in me, or that you all may be one, as I and the Father are one. If you're coming from an Eastern mindset, those things might be a little bit easier to understand. Here's how at least one person has described the difference between a Western or a European mindset and an Eastern or you could say Asian mindset. He said, the Westerner sees the shadow of something and believes it's the actual thing. Meanwhile, the Easterner sees the real thing and believes it's just a shadow of something. Neither, both are incomplete and therefore incorrect. I would say incomplete. I think you need to be able to look at things from both um, points of view. That was said by a character in a science fiction book by Gene Wolfe. And so we from the Western mindset tend to take the teachings of Jesus and make them into this list of things to do um, to achieve virtue. And we start thinking that the, quote, good Christian not only avoids doing evil things, but they also belong to a church and they belong to a community group and they in fact should serve in the church and lead in the community group and the good Christian should tithe and get out of debt and save money and give lots and lots of money away and, 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 yeah. And those are good things, but this list of things I have to do, that was not at all what Jesus intended. That kind of thinking is what he called the law, and that's what he came to both fulfill and deliver us from. So today is about realigning our thinking. Jeremiah 33, 6 says, I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. And the tense that that's in the original language really says that he has done it and he is continuing to do it. So I have healed them and revealed to them the abundance of peace and truth. And I am currently and continually healing them and revealing to them the abundance of peace and truth. 
The message version says, I'm going to show them life whole, life brimming with blessings. But before we can even see that, we need to understand that God is not interested in us fulfilling our duties. God loves us, and if there's something he wants us to not do or something he wants us to do or something he wants us to give us, um, it's because he's creating something beautiful out of our lives, not because he is impressed with our performance. It's not about our performance. It's about what he is shaping us into. And so I, I think we miss something when we come to church and we walk away even more burdened. Okay, one more thing I need to do. I need to tithe or I need to do this. That's, that wasn't what God intended. He's trying to bless us, but we tend to take these things on as something I have to do because then I get brownie points with God, and that's not what it's about. Have you ever read a sentence and it made no sense to you? And you kind of had to go back and say, huh? There's a um, title to a song by one of my favorite worship leaders, Charlie Hall. The title is On the Road to Beautiful, which made no sense to me at first. And then I started realizing that that so perfectly expresses the journey of life. We are on a road to a beautiful person that we're becoming, to a beautiful place, to a beautiful life, to beautiful things. We're on the road to beautiful. And we're all on the road to beautiful. We're not perfectly beautiful now. We're a work in progress. And if we understand this is a labor of love on God's part when he says, you know, we need a little less of this and a little more of that. If we understand that's a labor of of love on God's part, it's easier to yield to the process. There's a line in the song that says, my heart is set on a pilgrimage to heaven's own bright king. And I think of a pilgrimage and I think of how Jesus didn't come and do what he did and die in order to start a religion. There were enough religions by the time he got here. And you don't hear him telling people, hey, come worship me or come join my religion. What did he say to people when he invited them? Come follow me. It's a journey, right? I want to listen to the song. We're going to go ahead and play the the video if we can, Jim. Um, And I want you to let God speak to you about how much he loves you right where you are. In any place where you feel inadequate, put that down and let him love you. It may take a second. I actually had three videos today. Aren't you happy I'm only playing one? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for walking with us even when we're looking the other way. Lord, teach us to to see where you're headed and to follow you. I ask, Lord, that your spirit would rise up within us this morning and help us let go of the things that we're holding on so tightly, either because that's where we've had victory or because that's where we're afraid to fail or because we've been hurt or because we're still hurting. Lord, help us lay those down at your feet and follow you. In Jesus' name. So God meets us right where we are. And then he points out the things we need to let go of in order to have room for what he wants to add to us or to give to us. Let me give you an example. It is said that John D. Rockefeller, the world's first billionaire with a B, lived on crackers and milk 
a large part of his life because of stomach troubles caused by worrying over his riches. He was hanging on. He rarely had a good night's sleep, and guards stood constantly at his door. He was wealthy but miserable. And I guess at some point, God pointed something out to him. Because once he started sharing his wealth with others in great philanthropic endeavors, his health improved considerably, and he lived to be a very old man. He lived to 98. This is 100 years ago. Now compare this with one of his contemporaries who didn't have nearly as much money, D.L. Moody. You might have heard of the Moody Bible Institute or Moody Publishers. The great Chicago fire of 1871 destroyed his church and his home and the homes of most of his church members. Try to picture that happening to us and what that would be like. His family had to flee for their lives, and he himself said that the only things he saved was his reputation and his Bible. Well, sometime after the fire, he had this conversation. This guy comes up to him and says, Moody, I hear you lost everything in the Chicago fire. He says, well, you understood it wrong. I didn't. Well, how much do you have left? I can't tell you. I have a good deal more than what I lost. So the guy's thinking, wow, he must really be rich if he lost his house and his church and all this, and he still has more and doesn't even know how much he has because it's so much. And he says, you can't, you can't tell me how much you have? No. I didn't know you were that rich. What do you mean? Moody says, I mean just what I say. I got my old Bible out of the fire, and that's about the only thing. One promise came to me that illuminated the whole city a great deal more than the fire did. He that overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. You ask me how much I'm worth, I don't know. You may go and find out how much the Vanderbilts are worth, and the Astors, and the Rothschilds, but you can't find out how much a child of God is worth. Why? Because he is a joint heir with Christ. Why are you going around with your head down talking about your poverty? The weakest, poorest child of God is richer than a Vanderbilt because he has eternal riches. The stuff that burned up in Chicago was like the dust in the balance. So we can keep going through life, hanging on to things and then letting them go when it's pointed out. Or we can simply go through life with open hands and hold everything lightly. The quote here is from St. Augustine. He says, find out how much God has given you, and from it take what you need. The remainder is needed by others. That's not just about money, but it does fit in with the whole idea of closing the circle. But I want to shift gears and take a quick survey. Okay, when it comes to bandages, how many of you like to peel them off real slow? You know, you kind of loosen up the edges, and then you start peeling just a little. Anybody? Okay, we got a couple honest people. All right. How many would rather just rip it off, get it over with? That's me. Okay. Now, granted, you have a bandage because something is injured, right? And so it's going to probably hurt a little, but rather just get it over with. Well, there's ideas, there's possessions, there's relationships that we hold on to real tight, which is the opposite of living with open hands. And we're usually wanting to control these things or the outcomes associated with them instead of just trusting God with it. And we could call these sacred cows. That's our sacred cows. Um, Term comes from Hinduism and other religions that considered uh, cows to be a symbol of generosity, wealth, 
other good things. And so, therefore, they're sacred. You can't kill them. In fact, in some places, they're allowed to just wander wherever they want to. I've even heard of them wandering into the temple. And I'm trying to picture myself worshiping, and here comes the cow. And I'm sorry, sacred or not, but the stuff that comes out of the rear end of cows, you ever seen it? It's huge. It's huge. I mean, I'd heard of it, but then I saw Anyway. Okay, don't know what they do about that. In any case, in our culture, the term sacred cow means an idea that you have um, that it could be a person, it could be an institution, that can't be criticized. It can't even be questioned. Don't even talk to me about such and such. Don't even think of asking to borrow my such and such. Okay. Um, now, we all have things that are non-negotiable. And, and for those of you who are not married before you marry, it's important to find out what your partner's non-negotiables are. For example, for David, I may have mentioned this before, it was the toilet paper. The toilet paper must go over the roll, not behind the roll towards the wall. That's not just the house he lives in, it's any place he goes. And if you have it wrong at your house, he'll fix it for you because he lives to serve. Unashamedly, he says. I wouldn't touch your toilet paper except, you know, for what I need to use it for. But anyway. But that was okay with me because I agreed with, you know, how the toilet paper goes. No, for me, it was the fry daddy. I actually said it's the fry daddy or me. David ate a lot of fried foods before I came along. That was not negotiable. Okay. So you're wondering why I asked about the bandage? Because we're going to do an exercise today that will be like ripping the bandage off. And then when you walk out of here, I mean, assuming you fully participate in this, I believe you will see a great deal of progress in your spiritual life and your personal life. If you just go ahead and let's, let's get rid of the sacred cows now. Just, just get it over with. Okay. Uh, below your seats are clipboards. If you're near the back, you might need to grab a clipboard from one of the empty seats near the front. You've got paper. You've got pens. You've got no excuse. <clears throat> And what we're going to do is I'm going to talk about different areas that tend to become sacred cows. I'm going to try to push your buttons. Um, usually I try not to do that too much, but this time, for the sake of our ripping off the bandage, if I say something that you react to, other than thinking, <laughs> that's silly, who would, who would care about that? Okay. If you react to something, write it down. Later on, you can cross it off if it's not important, but we're trying to get to what are the things that you might not even realize are sacred to you. Now, you will need this for the second part of the exercise, so if you don't do this now, you're going to have a hard time later. Let's go on to the next slide. Isn't that a cute sacred cow? <laughs> there is no such thing, but anyway. Okay, one way you can identify your sacred cows is to pay attention to what gets you really riled up. Where do you tend to overreact if someone questions you or disagrees with you? Is it politics? Is it how you take care of your health? Or how you don't take care of your health? Is it picking where you will live? And the reason there's a California flag on there is because for years... I told anybody who would listen that I would never, ever, ever live in California because they have earthquakes. Homie, don't do earthquakes. Guess where Homie lived for seven years? 
Exactly. Because I'm not God, and he is, and I think I learned my lesson. But it is something to think about. I mean, do you put limits on God, on where he can send you? How about how I spend my money? My money. Do you live with open hands, or is that one a sacred cow to you? What about gender roles? Do you get really upset over the idea of men doing certain things or women doing certain things? And I'm not saying you're not allowed to have opinions or values. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when you really overreact, if anybody even dares to think something different, let alone do it. How about your future plans? Are those sacred cows? Do you feel like you have a right to that family vacation? Or to have a family, period? Or how about whom you're allowed to marry? And I know recently that's become a whole gender issue, but, I mean, this is going way beyond the gender question. If you read the Old Testament, parents had a lot to say in who their children married. Is that offensive to you? How about your pastors having something to say about who you marry? What about your family or your pastors having ideas about your friends, who you should hang out with? Is that a problem? Do you pick your, your friends all by yourself? How about what you do for a living? Are there some things you just will not do? How about your comfort level? Do you set limits on how much you will sacrifice or suffer or be inconvenienced? And the bare feet in the previous thing reminded me. I had some bad childhood experiences with stinky feet when I was little. And so I don't like feet. I don't touch people's feet. And nobody touches mine because they're very sensitive. So I don't do feet. So you can imagine my surprise when I went for a Passover meal at the Moranvilles a few years ago. And they were having a foot washing thing. I about died. It was an opportunity to kill a sacred cow for the sake of community, right? In fact, I've even instigated foot washing before. Well, it wasn't my idea. It was God's, but okay, anyway. Okay, let's, let's look at somebody else's experience. And, and I'll tell you, few people appreciate a hot shower as much as I do. This story comes from a guy named Steve May. He says, I went on a mission trip once to South America eager to serve Jesus by working in an impoverished community. Part of the arrangement was that I pay for my own room, which would include a shower. Okay, the man is paying. The room had a shower, but on day two, the hot water heater broke. I notified the person in charge, and to my growing irritation, it wasn't fixed on day three or four or five. On day six, I was beyond irritated. I called on an English-speaking friend to rant and rave and said, you tell the man in charge I want this fixed today. I'm paying for this room, and I want hot water today. So about 30 minutes later, there's a knock on my door, and it wasn't the hot water heater repairman. It was my friend. He said, Steve, taking a cold shower isn't such a terrible thing. The landlord is doing all he can, and he is very, very sorry you are inconvenienced. Now, here's your chance to act like a Christian. (laughs) Act like a Christian? Didn't I travel all the way to South America to help poor people hear about Jesus? 
Isn't that acting Christian enough? Actually, no, it isn't. I'm sure that if the people I had come to help knew I lost my temper over a hot water heater, I would have lost all credibility with them. I was living in luxury as far as they were concerned. If my kindness was dependent upon my being comfortable, I doubt they would have been interested in my kind of Christianity. The hot water heater episode tested my faith and showed me where it was lacking. I wonder how much of us have the guts to say, John, this is your chance to act like a Christian. I wonder how many of those have the guts to say, self, this is your chance to act like a Christian. Do you have any sacred cows about where you go to church? Is that like your decision, like where you're going to go to lunch? Do you have any sacred cows about how you practice your faith or how church is run? I've heard some pretty passionate rationalizations about why things have to be done a certain way on Sundays. For many years, I went to several churches that taught that whatever you do during worship, you must not play any instruments. Okay? I heard sermons on this. Now, there are other churches, I won't name any names, where if you want to get a reaction, just suggest, be sure you're near a door or an exit, just suggest they drop one instrument. Ooh, it's quiet. I've seen churches actually split over how to do Lord's Supper. Do we use wine or grape juice? And this is such a big deal, they'll actually split and no longer call each other brother. Okay. Do we use individual little portions or one loaf? Because after all, Jesus said he broke the bread, right? So you need one loaf. But if you're going to do one loaf, does it have yeast or not? Is it supposed to be flat, unleavened bread? I mean, let's get holier and holier, okay? Do you have the little cups or one big communal cup? And for me, that was almost a sacred cow, not how you did it, but how often you did it. And then God brought me to this church. And I was pretty sure this is where he was planting us. I desperately needed a church body. My kids were really thriving in the youth group. But there was this issue. So either God was making a mistake or maybe this wasn't that big a deal to him. Doesn't mean my understanding was necessarily wrong, but the priority for him was apparently not as high as it was for me. So I, I killed my sacred cow, and here I am, 10, 11 years later. But here's what breaks my heart those issues are not what Jesus suffered and died for. And I remember some 12 years ago sitting in a church listening to a sermon about how you were not a part of the body of Christ, you were headed for hell and damnation, if you sang repetitive choruses in church. And the first thing I thought was, huh, what about psalms? But then I started looking around, and I remember seeing a lady sitting to the right of me, and I knew her, and I knew she was being beaten by her husband. And her husband was sitting next to her, And he actually was a pretty nice guy, but he had a gambling addiction. And this thing was tearing him up so bad when he would lose money, that's when he would come home and abuse her. And they had two little girls. 
And I'm thinking, this is what Jesus died for, to free these people. Not about choruses. And then I look a couple of benches in front of them, and there was a guy who was just the sweetest soul, the kind of person, you ask him to do anything, go clean the toilets, whatever, he does it with a smile, he feels honored. He had told me that he sometimes heard voices in his head telling him to do bad things. So he would lock himself in his closet to make sure he wouldn't do anything bad to anyone. That's what Jesus died for, to free him. And so I had a real hard time with these sermons. I knew it wasn't time for me to leave that church. I believe if we're in an army, churches are like army units. You get assigned. That's just my personal thought. And so during that time, this is a little bit of coaching, um, I did not complain and criticize and go around telling people how whoever was preaching didn't know what they were doing, blah, blah, blah. There were times where I had to leave the auditorium and go stand in the lobby because I was getting ready to stand up and scream something. Um, but I finished my time there, and I knew God was moving me on because we were actually leaving the state. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said, A man who won't die for something is not fit to live. And obviously he found something he was willing to die for. Now, most of us probably won't have to take a bullet for a greater cause. But what's amazing is what a hard time we have with the idea of dying to self, even just for a few minutes or a few years. So here's the secret. Okay, I told you, trick questions, all that. Here's the secret to letting go of those sacred cows. Ready? Realize you are already dead. Colossians 3.3 out of the Amplified says, For as far as this world is concerned, you have died, and your new real life is hidden with Christ and God. And then Paul says something similar in his letter to the Galatian church. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. In him I have shared his crucifixion. It is no longer I who live, but Christ, the Messiah, lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith. I want to look at that verse and a few others from the message version. So this is Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion, and I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, and I'm not going to go back back on that. So Paul was saying that he was already dead, even though we know his body was alive, right? I mean, he's dictating this stuff. Okay. So let's look at what happens when we die. According to the United States legal system, all sorts of stuff happens when you die. Here's part of Michael Jackson's death certificate. And it shows that he was pronounced or declared dead at 2.26 on the afternoon of June 25th. Now, he probably died several hours earlier, but for the legal system, what counts is when he was declared dead or pronounced dead. And I want you to remember that word, declared. Okay, so here's a question. If he was declared dead at 226, what did Michael Jackson own at 227? 
Okay, how many of his funky clothes did he own? How many cars? How many big houses? How many records or rights to records? Right. And at 227 on the day he died, how much money did he owe? Now, a couple years earlier, in 2006, Michael Jackson, and this is according to court documents, which is about the only thing I sort of trust, he was approximately $350 million in debt. $350 million. At 227, he was zero in debt. All that stuff was a problem of his estate. When he died, it became somebody else's problem. Please don't do that. Now, I believe people don't cease to exist when their body exists. We cease to exist for the legal system. But in reality, it's very different. I was in the room when my dad died, and I was in the room for a few hours after that until they finally, you know, dealt with his body. And there were times when I would, you know, there were several of us there, and there were times when I would look across the room, and my eyes would go by the bed where he was still lying, and I didn't recognize him. I mean, that could have been a stranger there. And I remember looking and saying, okay, I recognize the hair, I recognize the hand. You know, because it was odd to me to look at my dad and not recognize him, but he was gone. Who he was was gone. It was just the body there. So if, if the legal system says we cease to exist as a person with rights and responsibilities when our body's dead, declared dead, what about the kingdom system? When are we declared dead in the kingdom? According to Paul, it happens when we accept Christ's sacrifice, and at that point we declare ourselves dead to our old selfish way of living. And we declare that we now live for Christ and that Christ lives in us. And listen to what he says in Romans 6, verses 3 through 6. Have you forgotten that when we, joined, when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? We died and were buried with him, with Christ by baptism. Um, that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. So just like all those people and companies that had power over Michael Jackson before his body died because of the debts, they no longer have power over him. It's just like that with sin once we declare ourselves dead. I like how the message puts it. That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country or kingdom of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country, kingdom, of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we were lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. When we were raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace-sovereign country. That's the road to beautiful. That's the journey. So many of us have had a moment in our lives when we accepted that great exchange, Jesus' life for our life, Jesus' death for our death. And we might have said a prayer or made a declaration or maybe we were baptized. But very few, I believe, if any of us, really understood what was happening in the kingdom at that moment. When our physical body was saying these things or going under the water, what was happening in the kingdom, in the spiritual side? And so we're going to do an extra, the following part of the exercise, and that's like the ripping the bandage off. If you're willing to be uncomfortable for a few minutes, um, this could propel your spiritual growth. And so David and Don, if you could pass out those papers. And if you have not had a time um, with Christ where you accepted that exchange, um, 
I encourage you to do the exercise anyway. I was going to play a song, but that's not going to work. But what I want you to do is to look at the list of things you were writing down and then transfer them to this paper for the sake of those who will be hearing a recording. What's being passed out is a last will and testament with blanks. And there's a section where people can fill in the things, the iPod, the car, the iPhone, whatever, the things that they want to surrender to Christ and another blank for the other stuff, relationships, plans, whatever those sacred cows were. Don't worry about the fact that you're probably writing down some pretty private stuff. You'll have the chance to destroy that paper before you leave. So nobody else needs to see it. Okay, so here's what you need to do, if I can get your attention for a second. There's a place up at the top for your name, two places, if you would fill it out like I did. If you're not from San Antonio, just go ahead and scratch that off and put in where you're from. And then if you look at the bottom of the page, there's a place to fill in the date when you made that deal with Christ. If you don't remember the exact date, that's fine. Um, If you have not made that deal yet, you can put today's date on it or you can leave it blank. Just remember the exchange doesn't happen until you're ready for it. So transfer the notes to your list. After you fill in those two blank areas, you can sign it. When you're done, if you go to the back, there's a table in the back of the room. There are two shredders where you can shred it. You know, in the old days, they did sacrifices where they burned stuff. I don't think the building code allows for that. Um, If you want to keep it, that's up to you. But if you don't shred it, still go back because you need to pick something up. Remember, it's an exchange. You're handing this over, and you're picking something up. There's some envelopes back there. And, David, if you'll be back there to help make sure everybody gets an envelope, be good. Do not open the envelopes. So the work we've been doing for the past few weeks has been a lesson series on wealth, riches, and money. And that's part of that road to becoming the beautiful spirit God has in mind. And there's no shame in not starting out perfect, since none of us start out perfect. It's not, there's no shame that we still have more steps to take. And we're going to wrap up that series next week. And that lesson more than any helps us see this beautiful place, this beautiful condition, this beautiful work that God's doing, which is really the whole point to the lesson. It's not about more things for our list. And I'm going to take a sneak peek at that now. But, Jim, we're going to go on to slide 36, just for the sake of time. You know, I was going to talk about the inheritance that Christ left us, except he didn't stay dead. So, yeah, it's a little different than leaving someone an inheritance. Instead, he shares with us what he received from the Father. That's the nature of his will. He didn't have anything to put down or relinquish, but he has so much to share with us. And Romans 8 says, The Spirit himself bear witness with our spirits that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So he's sharing something with us. Andrew Womack, who has a radio ministry, writes about this, saying, We are not just heirs. We are joint heirs with Christ. In the same way in which a check made out to, bless you, to two people cannot be cashed without the endorsement of both parties, 
so our joint heirship with Jesus cannot be taken advantage of without our cooperation. Unaware of this, many Christians are just trusting that the Lord will produce the benefits of salvation for them. They are acutely aware that they can do nothing without him, but don't realize that he will do nothing without us. The way we place our endorsement on the check is to believe what God promised in his word and act on it as if it were true. It is. Jesus has already signed his name to every promise in the word. We aren't waiting for him. He is waiting for us. So next Sunday we'll talk about that great inheritance and how we actually cash it in and what that means for our daily lives. Why don't you go ahead and open your envelopes and take a look. I encourage you to take this paper and spend some time with it during the week, maybe even look up some of the scriptures that are there, and we'll talk some more next week. Remember that when it comes to all your rights and your property, you are dead. You gave all that to Jesus, but for the purposes of the kingdom, he is sharing a whole lot with you, and it's time for you to arise. And I mean the resurrected you, not the old you. Um, if we can play a song, you can leave whenever you're ready. I want to have some time to let this sink in. And if it helps you to kneel to do that, we have room to do that. If you want someone to partner with you um, to pray about this stuff or any other area of your life, then you can come up to the front. And I'm going to ask those who are trained in prayer to please come up to the front. And if you need prayer, stick around afterwards and tell somebody.